So, Dr. Verma, I'd just like to kind of check in with you. What What is your kind of chosen theory? Um, where's its origins for the for the purposes of of this video and interview? Thanks, Kevin. So, the cho my chosen theory, or the theory that I've probably spent most time with, is um, intersectionality, which some people argue is more of a metaphor than a theory. But I've I've definitely kind of applied it as a theory to my own work. So in terms of its kind of conception or where it got pioneered is that intersectionality derives from black feminist scholars, particularly Kimberly Crenshaw, who wrote, you know, the original paper in, I think in 1990 or 1991, um, to really kind of capture the complexities around this idea around the simultaneity of oppressions that people experience parallel oppressions but in different ways and that can uni uniquely shape their experiences. Also, not just in terms of the actual groups that are marginalized, but also kind of reflects how structures and different structures intersect to shape inequalities in those groups as well. So it really kind of unpicks and looks at how these inequalities, how these oppressions, how these privileges all kind of push and pull in different communities and different structures as well. Where we see intersectionality kind of particularly being applied is in kind of organizations or institutions of where we expect individuals and communities to be liberated. So for example, in higher education, we might see that as sort of a space for liberation for communities to educate, to empower themselves. But more often than not, we see that particularly uh, black communities and, and ethnic minority communities in these spaces are often marginalized or experiencing racism or different kinds of oppression or ableism and, and so on and so forth, for example. And all those kind of come together to really understand and kind of bring to life what intersectionality is. Um, in terms of how I've learned to use it, um, my, my understanding of intersectionality has definitely evolved over time. So I went from a very kind of academic theoretical basis to actually using it as a lens, um, a way of looking at and making sense of different issues and different organizations and different systems that we work and live and play in in some ways as well. Um, and I think it's it's that lens, that metaphor that's really kind of that really kind of uh, that unpacks um, the lived experiences that marginalized groups and communities face. But more importantly, it unpacks some of the structural inequalities and structural racisms that exist within different organizations and, and cultures as well. Brilliant, thank you. And if we're thinking about this within the context of learning and teaching, so for students that may be engaging with this and staff that may be engaging with ideas around intersectionality for the very first time, um, on a very practical level, how could you see this being applied in the classroom or as part of a lecture or a seminar to kind of stimulate discussion and introduce this concept and idea? So I think that's um, it's a really good question. And I think one of the ways we can look at it is if we think about the, the learning and teaching journey, so to speak. So we know, so one thing that we know is that even before um, Black, Asian, minority ethnic students even come to university, they would have already experienced some kind of systemic racism or some sort of systemic oppression, even before they've got to a higher education setting. So one thing is about really recognizing the histories or the legacies of the students that do come into the classroom, where they're coming from, what they experience. You know, we've seen, for example, in previous like government reports around the issues of black students and school exclusions. So how does that impact their experience when they come into a higher education 
setting and are we accommodating are we supporting those particular groups um, in that way as well so that's some that's one tangible thing we can look at is we can look at the specific journeys that students have got into um, or, or been on even before they come to the higher education space in itself and the other part is then we can start to look at the student journey through that so one thing is looking at the curriculum and we've seen a lot of examples of um, good practice around decolonizing the curriculum trying to create more inclusive curriculums uh, and moving towards sort of anti-racist kind of cultures as well um, but it's also you know what is the social makeup of those of those classrooms or those kind of educational spaces we've seen also like articles um, written around um, but you know higher education being very you know colonial and that they're embedded within colonial structures how are the spaces in those buildings or institutions we work in, are they too white? Are they not reflecting the diversity of the student body? So there's some kind of like tangible and concrete things we can look at to think about where we would start to integrate intersectional thinking or that lens on the learning practice. I think for the, I think understanding the student's journey for, from the teacher's perspective is really important so that the teacher or you know, the lecturer or academic, whoever, can actually support the students uh, you know, in a fair and opportune way as well. Um, and one of the things that I've, you know, people that, that some teachers are, are kind of afraid of or don't have much confidence in is, is that you know, they, they automatically exclude themselves from saying, well, I don't, I'm not a specialist in intersectionality. And so I don't know, I mean, we need to bring someone in to do this. And the thing is, it's, it's, intersectionality is not an exclusive theory. It's, it's, it, was, it was brought into the academic sphere so that people could use it and apply it to their work. So I think when we, we need to encourage staff and teachers actually to not be afraid of the language, not be afraid of intersectionality, but also to actually kind of help them learn about it so that they can apply it as well and you know, remove that fear as well. I think for, for teachers, there's lots of good practice in terms of that decolonization work. But I think from just a human perspective as well, I think if we can encourage teachers to have that intersectional lens when they come to particularly working with students in a virtual space, as we are now at the moment, and in face-to-face, -face, if and or when we come back to that, I think that could be really powerful as well. Um, because the teachers then is recognising the students' histories as they come into the education or the higher education space, and how are they tailoring their education and learning and teaching to those students to be fair for them as well. I think that that in the, I think in terms of the the tangible things we can do are around simple things like the imagery or the resources, the case studies that are used. Are the assignments really reflecting or enabling people to talk about their legacies or empower themselves in, in different ways as well? Um, are we providing the same opportunities? They, those are the more like quantifiable things we can do. But I think the qualitative, the more cultural stuff comes from embracing, you know, this embracing building confidence around intersectionality and not seeing it as a very, there's a technical part to it, but I think we can all do more, I think, to, to, to utilise it in, in kind of the higher education space. Definitely. Um, thank you for that, Dr. Verma. And I, I totally concur with what you're saying. I think there is a real anxiety and a real fear um, for staff engaging on this journey um, and, and there is a technicality to it and I think sometimes that can become a huge barrier for people to engage with the work. I like the point that you made around 
the lived experiences, recognising lived experiences and the legacies that um, students are bringing into the classroom or bringing into the institution and using intersectionality as a way to um, understand that and to um, deconstruct some of that narrative as well so that we have a better appreciation for them as part of supporting their student journey. I just wondered, um, as part of doing this in the classroom, do we need to be a bit more conscious about how, I mean, do we, can we be more explicit around that, for example, um, just for, our, yeah, just for an example, an illustration, at London Met, we are currently engaged in a strong emphasis on working with students as partners, as part of designing our curriculum, um, you know, working hand in hand with students, ensuring that we have inclusive assessments and inclusivity of the learning experience. So I just wondered, as part of that student partnership lens, how can we have um, those conversations um, around intersectionality in, in our classrooms for those that might be a bit anxious um, or apprehensive around engaging in those dialogues as part of that student partnership lens? So um, I, I think like, th Enabling student participation, empowering students to kind of take control um, of parts of, of, of their education, I think is really important. And I think it's also an important part of life as well to kind of encourage proactivity and, and encouraging students to kind of be able to take initiative when, when they come out into when they come out into and graduate and come out into like real organizations and where, where the complexities do exist, those oppressions do start to come through even more so in, in, than in higher education in some ways, which can be quite tricky to navigate. I'm a big believer in participatory action, collective effort. Um, I think Leela Watson speaks a lot around collective action um, from her work in Indigenous cultures in Australia. Um, and I think we, we need to enable students to be partners. We, we need to encourage their participation so they have an active role in their own education. Um, but we also want to be mindful that we don't put too much labor on them to do all the work as well. Like they are coming to, you know, get a degree or educate themselves and then to get an award of some kind as well so that they can go out into the real world and, and do really exciting and wonderful things in some ways. So I think the student as partners it's a really great way of, you know, enabling participation in education. I think some of the things that I need to consider are that some, you know, some students that come into higher education may have already lost faith in the system if they've already had negative experiences. Um, some of them um, may be more involved um, because that's in their nature. So I think it's understanding those differences in some ways. Um, but also sometimes the, the, the staff don't feel they have the um, skills to support all students in a fair and equitable way as well. And, and I think this is an, an issue when we have significant groups underrepresented in staff, you know, uh, in, in, in higher education institutions as well. When we don't have diverse staff, it makes it harder for them to engage and encourage participatory action with our students um, in that way too. So I think I'd like to think that when we move towards having more diverse and representative staff in these different spaces, that actually when we have initiatives like student as partners, it does hold more weight. There's more, there's more encouragement. And I think it also helps provide role models for underrepresented groups in, in the classroom as well. Um, so I think there's, there's kind of a, there's kind of two parts to it, I guess, in some ways. So I think it's, it's great to kind of push forward with that student participation and partnership work. Um, 
And I think some we see some institutions even using sort of reverse mentoring with students as well, which I think is quite an interesting, you know, interesting approach too. But I think on the flip side, it doesn't negate the fact that, you know, we don't still have staff. Like we, we have maybe a handful of, of black female professors across the UK. You know, those aren't, that isn't enough, those aren't enough role models for, you know, enabling really, really good and authentic participation as well. So I think that's something we need to consider that, yes, we should have those interventions, but what are we doing to, to kind of sort out internal representation and role modelling and, and things like that? Definitely. No, thank you for that, Dr. Verma. And just finally, to think about, are there any key quotes or um, inspiring quotations that really kind of nails kind of intersectionality or does it justice in that sense to kind of convey its meaning and impact that you know? Yeah, so one of the, the, the kind of um, issues, I guess, with, with how people see intersectionality is that they try to produce it into a framework or they try to provide a foundation or a theory around it. and. There's, there's absolutely those things, but I think sometimes we can get so lost in the theory that we forget that one of the reasons um, why intersectionality was kind of pioneered or kind of brought to the surface by people like Kimberly Crenshaw and Andrew Davis, for example, um, is it was meant to produce action. It was meant to help produce meaningful interventions or meaningful programs of work that can help facilitate change and, and build anti-racist cultures and anti-racist practices. Um, and I think the, the, the quote that I've chosen is from Andrea Davis, and she says, you have to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world, and you have to do it all the time. And I think that's the, really the essence of intersectionality. You know, intersectionality is about radical transformation, and you have to keep using it. It has to become a part of your identity um, as a lens, as a, as a prism or metaphor, whichever word you want to use. And I think that's the really kind of critical part is that when we embrace intersectionality as a way of looking at society or higher education, teaching, learning, that's when we can start looking at transformation. That's when we can start looking at, you know, really decolonizing, really dismantling structures um, and, and kind of holding people to account without fear because the other part of intersectionality is really about the participatory action. It's not, an, it's, it's, a, it's a prism, it's a metaphor that requires communities to come together to, to kind of liberate each other in some ways so I think that's quite an important part so that, that's the quote that I, I kind of followed and, and picked out that I thought would be a different lens on on how people might perceive intersectionality as a purely academic concept but it's quite it's got a very activist approach to it so yeah brilliant thank you for that Dr Verma I appreciate that